The sun is low, and the first traces of spring brace themselves against the nighttime vengeance of the dying winter. Vivian Walker returns to her room in the Black Oriental Hotel, tired from a day of ceremony before the press. The contract is signed, the work is finished, but her revelation has robbed the moment of any possible satisfaction. There is one person she wants to speak to, but he is not there. She musters the last of her strength and writes him a letter. Unpin your hair and leave your type at the door. It's time for Neon Jezebel. This episode of Neon Jezebel will continue in just a moment. But first, a word from our sponsor. Throughout history, brave men have answered the call of justice whenever the authorities could not. In America, we have the local vigilance committees. These modern-day Robin Hoods operate wherever crime does. They don masks so that the shopsters, lawbreakers, and gangsters of the underworld cannot exact vengeance upon their families. The last year has seen a sharp rise in crime in our fair city. The devil alcohol has a stranglehold on many of our citizens, a hold so tight that it will take more than a constitutional amendment to break it. It will take the courage and dedication of the men of our law enforcement agencies to exercise spirits once and for all. Answering this call is none other than the Silver Sabres. The Silver Sabres are the oldest and most storied vigilance committee in New York City. They not only uphold the law, they uphold the heritage and tradition of the Empire City itself. Their leader is Silver Star, who has the honor of being the only vigilante deputized by the state of New York. Anyone on the team can tell you, he's the brains of the outfit. The brawn is Silver Fist, standing and imposing 5 feet 11 inches tall and weighing in at 220 pounds. Silver Fist is impossible to miss. If I didn't know any better... I'd say it was Tom Jenkins under that mask. If a gangster gets lucky, he can escape Silver Fist, but he will never outrun Silver Streak, the fastest man in New York. He's almost as fast as Olympic champion sprinter Charlie Paddock. The two have even raced each other and are, pardon me, fast friends. And who's this beauty? Why, it's none other than Silver Fox. She's no stenographer, She's America's favorite vigilantess. But gentlemen, don't get any ideas about letting her catch you. Silver Fox handles the apprehension of criminal women, because upholding American values means upholding common decency. And when the ladies are behaving themselves, she makes quite a mascot. Wowza! So if you see bootleggers or scofflaws in your neighborhood, tell your operator that you want to talk to the Silver Sabres. Help keep New York safe with the Silver Sabres. And now, back to our show.
dear Cranston, I was prepared to return to an empty room last night. I know you meant it when you made that promise, but I had a sneaking suspicion that habit might get the better of you. It is therefore with relief that I discovered that you had not gone back on your word, merely that you are being followed by a powerful man you have angered. I was out rather later than I expected yesterday. Gabrielle was quite excited for our girls' day out. While it's not the same as hitting the town with men, especially our brothers in tow, I was still taken aback by the profundity of her excitement. It was like she had not been out at all in weeks. Although, now that I see it written down, I recall that weeks ago she was on a steamer from Hong Kong. So perhaps it was an entirely warranted degree of surprise. We had lunch at a pricey but startlingly bland restaurant in Manhattan. Gabrielle was quite taken with it. No doubt the food in Hong Kong is desperately English. Oh, the blessings of living in a former French colony. After coffee, we headed back towards the hotel. I think I mentioned this before, but Gabrielle got her personal seamstress allowed into the country. Apparently, Edward has the kind of influence that gets the U.S. government to make exceptions on its immigration bans. The seamstress, Bo Fa, as I recall, has her own little shop a half dozen blocks away from the Blake Hotel. Gabrielle told me that she insisted her father find somewhere outside the hotel. Otherwise, she might never get the chance to leave. It was a charming little place. The front room was tiny, with just a few of the Chinese dresses on display. It seemed empty when we walked in, but Gabrielle was unfazed. She strode right through the front room and into the workshop, clearly quite at home. Bo Fa was not dressed for work, at least not by local standards. She and Gabrielle communicated entirely in Chinese. I got the impression that Bo Fa understood English reasonably well, but was uncomfortable speaking. At any rate, with the thickness of her accent, it may as well have been Chinese for all I could understand. The two women are remarkably similar. I do not mean in the prosaic way one hears Orientals compared to each other. They are about the same height and weight. When I closed my eyes, I could hardly tell which of them was speaking, though that may be my own unfamiliarity with the language. The distinctions I did mark in their faces could be altered with makeup. Enough rouge and they could be twins. Despite the communication difficulties, I had a whale of a time with them. Once Bo Fa had measured me for a Chinese dress of my own, we retired to the roof, where we drank among drying unmentionables. So it was well past eight, and I was spiffed when I got back to the room. Yes, all of that was to explain why I did not write to you sooner. There was no time this morning. I had to talk with the lawyers about the final changes to the contract over breakfast. Then, Edward had called a whole press conference for the signing of the contract, so I had to really go all out dolling myself up for the cameras. My hair was being so uncooperative that I was almost late to the meeting. Everyone asked where you were, and I told them I didn't know. Your reputation as a man about town saved us both there. 
I said you mentioned something about a gentleman's club, and that seemed to be enough for them. It troubled absolutely no one to imagine that you were off in some can-can girl's boudoir, sleeping off a prohibition violation or two. I know you said it was all to help you sleep, but you may want to play it up a bit more. No one would suspect a boozy, womanizing layabout of being a master detective. Once the press was there, Edward gave a long speech about how great this agreement was for New York City and America. Michael and I took turns signing our names very slowly, then shook hands for entirely too long. And that was it. We are officially in business with St. Moon, but that may not actually matter. You see, I was approached by a woman as the conference was breaking up. She had a press badge and said she worked at a newspaper called The Atlas. I also noticed that she kept sneaking glances at Michael. He was looking back and seemed to know her. The evidence points to this being the journalist he was all lovesick about the other night. The woman introduced herself as Friday Johnson. She asked if we could speak privately. She fed me a line about exclusives being hard to get when there were a dozen other reporters within earshot, and getting exclusives was how one got promoted. According to her, if she could get an exclusive with me, it might convince her editor to send her out for more interviews with high-profile women. I excused myself, and we went to the only safe place we could, the powder room. Once there... She confessed that she wasn't actually interested in an exclusive. Friday pulled a fat dossier out of her bag and began flipping through it. I was skeptical at first, but it was beyond compelling. Cranston, this young woman figured out what St. Moon's vaccine project is. She was talking very quickly, so I didn't get the full story. What I do know is that Friday was investigating the deaths of some poor children. She discovered that the children were being poisoned by a mixture of two St. Moon products. The first is an infant formula. Mothers mix the powder with their breast milk to make it more nutritious for Junior. The other product was that weak beer, Yippity. The mothers drank the beer and it mixed with their breast milk. Then, when the breast milk was combined with the infant formula, it became a poison. Our cargo inspections would never have uncovered this, not before it had killed dozens or hundreds of children. Friday told me that both of these products were marketed to working-class women. Evidently, Edward Blake has decided that the cause of eugenics is worth a few innocents. Or perhaps he believes the poor to be genetically inferior in some way. He wouldn't be the first. Now that we know what to look for... We can turn this over to the rose and chain. I'm not so naive as to think this will be the end of it for us, but we are just that much closer to being done with this whole affair. In the meantime, we have no further business in New York. Our train leaves tomorrow at 1 p.m. Do let me know if I shall be meeting you at the station or if you think it's safe to return to the hotel. Your sister, Vivian Walker.
Podcasts are the newest and most exciting way to hear your favorite audio programs on the go, but you already knew that. What you may not have known is that the success and longevity of a podcast depends on you, our loyal listeners. If you've enjoyed the adventure, mystery, and heartbreak of this program, the best way to show your appreciation is by rating and reviewing our show on Apple Podcasts. These reviews make the show more visible on the Apple Podcasts main page, which means that more people can discover what you already know. When you're in the mood for cozy noir adventure, nothing satisfies quite like Neon Jezebel. But it's up to you to let the world know. So why not take this moment to head over there now and rate and review? Afterwards, you can follow us on Instagram at Neon Jezebel Podcast, all one word. That's Neon Jezebel Podcast on Instagram. And now, we continue with our show. Dear Vivian, well, you certainly buried that lead. All right, so, Edward Blake has found a way to secrete a poison into common foods. While that does make the targeting of the poison clumsy, one need not hunt an animal into extinction. If you decrease its numbers sufficiently, it will be overcome by stronger species. That is how eugenicists think, that humans are mere animals to be bred like sheepdogs. It is science untempered. But as you said, that is very soon to be the rose and chains matter to settle. If Miss Johnson's evidence is so persuasive, I wonder why she didn't print it. The obvious answer being that her editor refused to publish it. Allegations of this kind made against a man as powerful as Edward Blake tend to be litigated into oblivion. But there is a less obvious answer as well. Michael said that he met this pretty young reporter at his Welcome Home Gala. From what we've gleaned, it sounds like he got her up to his room. His room being just a few doors away from his father's office. What if the entire liaison was a ruse on Miss Johnson's part? What if she allowed herself to be seduced so that she could gain access to private St. Moon files? Files such as delivery schedules. Miss Johnson chases this story and realizes that she will never be able to publish it, but she must do something. So, she prepares. A red coat, a red hat, a mask. She throws herself at Michael, gets upstairs, waits for him to fall asleep, then goes searching for the delivery manifests. Surely somewhere in Edward Blake's offices there is sufficient information to tell her where the yippity is being delivered. She leaves the hotel, changes her costume, and goes for the nearest place she is sure the delivery truck will be. I said before that it made no sense for the Virago to attack the truck on the same night as the gala. Unless the Virago was hiding her identity by being at the gala. Parties like that are such chaotic things that it would be impossible to disprove an alibi. Once one person saw you there, who's to say exactly when you left? If I'm right, the Virago is an ally. More importantly, she is someone that the Rose and Chain would consider quite valuable to the society. After all, if this lone woman could find out what the Walker Corporation has spent months failing to discover, she must be a very keen mind indeed. 
if I could convince her to join the Rosen chain, that brokering could be a significant asset to them, one they would be obliged to pay back. I have learned some extent of how many resources the Rosen chain is prepared to invest in stopping the vaccine project. It appears to be significant. If I can save them some of those resources, resources already dedicated, they could be persuaded to exchange those saved resources for an investigation into the whereabouts of Della Kane. Seeing as it is not yet safe for me to return to the hotel, I will be going out on patrol with the Silver Sabres tonight. I may as well pull my weight. Our purpose is to locate the Virago, and we have some theories on where she might be. If I can talk to her, I just might be able to bring her in. If I bring her in, if I can convince her to join one of our vigilance committees, that might be sufficient exchange for locating my bird woman. I'm so close, Vivian. I can feel it. Now, I don't want you worrying about me going out tonight. My mission is to find the Virago and make friends with her. As vigilante missions go, it's quite safe. Naturally, my first thought was to dust off father's old identity, Mr. Smoke. However, I have been talking with one of the Silver Sabres, Miss Silver Fox, and I discovered that it is actually something like common knowledge that mother and father were members of a vigilance committee. The knowledge isn't public, of course, but within vigilante circles, it is treated as a known thing. Moreover, Mr. Smoke was only ever active in Silkhaven, his appearance in New York would raise eyebrows under any circumstances, but coinciding as it does with our visit would tip off quite a few people. So, I found myself in need of an alter ego all my own. When I was quite young, maybe six or seven, just starting school. I was with father at Queen Henriette Station. He asked me what I would do if I was separated from him in the station. I told him that I would go to the ticketing booth and tell the man on the till that I was lost. Then father asked what I would do if he and I were separated and there was a bad man looking for me. He explained that, because we were rich, there might be people that wanted to kidnap me. They would ask father for money, which he promised he would pay, but they were still dangerous, and it was better for me to escape than to be ransomed. And I would have been ransomed. He was adamant about that. He asked me if I saw any other children. I did. There was a group of boys near the Rembrandt Street entrance. They were dressed in plain clothes and were playing marbles. Father asked me, How could you make yourself look like one of them? I didn't know. Are they wearing coats? They weren't. He told me that I could hide among them, but I would have to take off my coat and keep it hidden somehow. Excited by the idea of pretending to be someone else, I pointed to the shoeshine boys. I could take off my coat, smear a little boot black on my face. Then father asked me, Do you know how to shine shoes? I looked at the boys, moving their hands in deft and confident strokes, and realized that I did not. Looking like a shoeshine boy was about more than a smudge on the cheek. What do you know how to do? Father asked me. I couldn't think of anything. 
I remember starting to cry at that point. Then Father asked, Do you know how to be a son? I nodded at that. He pointed to a woman who was sitting by herself. What would happen, he asked, if you went and sat next to that woman? I told him that she would ask what I wanted, and I would tell her that I was lost. What would she do, he asked. She would take my hand, I said, and walk with me to the ticket booth. If I walked with an adult woman holding her hand, I would certainly look like her son to anyone that didn't know her. Father thought it was a game. We would play it any time it was just the two of us out in the city. It must be quite challenging constantly finding things to say to children. I think it was Father's way of always having something that he and I could talk about. It was terrifying for me. I had nightmares about being kidnapped for years. I was always running through crowded places looking for somewhere to hide, to blend in. I never got caught in the dreams, but I always knew who was chasing me. It was a man in a dark grey coat. He had three long scars across his face. The image of him is my most enduring childhood fear. So, when Silver Fox asked me for something that was important to me, something I might associate with crime or justice or the night, that was the strongest idea in my mind. We went through some of the loose items that the Silver Sabers keep for disguises and such. There was a dark grey coat and a balaclava hood. The three scars were especially evocative to her. As I write this, the Sabers' housekeeper is at her sewing machine, stitching three red stripes into the balaclava hood, so that I might embody my own childhood fear. Is it strange that the idea of becoming a thing from my own nightmare thrills me? It gives me a sense of strength that I do not entirely trust, but refuse to deny. Silver Fox asked me if the figure from my nightmares had a name. I said he did. I knew it, the way you sometimes just know things in a dream. His name is The Stalker. Isabel is written by Zachary Westbrook. Vivienne Walker is played by Amy Alea. Cranston Walker is played by Zachary Westbrook. Announcement by me, Camille Faucon. You can connect with us on Twitter at NeonJezebelPod or on Instagram at NeonJezebelPodcast. All of your episodes can be found on our website, neonjezebel.com.